Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories of people performing random acts of kindness. We often have that segment here on our show, and very often it's produced and wrapped up and narrated. But we felt like this story needed more personal attention. Not that the others aren't personal, but this one, we just wanted to talk to the parties and have you hear this story yourselves from them and Diazerome suffers from cerebral palsy, a movement condition that makes it very hard for her to walk on her own. So six fraternity brothers from the University of Central Arkansas decided to be her legs for a day. They carried her up a thousand-foot mountain. They each took turns giving her piggyback rides until they got to the top. Diage is here with us today to talk about this experience, and also one of the brothers, one of those fraternity brothers, Benji Richards, thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. You're so welcome, man. You bet. And Diaja, let's start with you. Um, You obviously wanted to see the top of this mountain. You wanted to get to the top. Why did you want to do that and talk about what what it felt like to get this offer from these from these fraternity boys? You know, I just seen all the pictures. You know, the people locally around um, Arkansas and Conway. <laughs> I've just seen all the pictures on Instagram, you know, Facebook, everybody, the joys of getting to the top, you know. That was something I wanted to do. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, nothing's going to stop me from, um, from doing this and something that I want to do just because I have a disability doesn't mean that I can't do something that everybody else does. And just to get the opportunity from these guys to climb this mountain, I was overjoyed. I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, man, let's do it. Did you know these uh, fraternity brothers? Yes. Um, Actually, um, my... um, I met them through, like, a wiffle ball tournament that we had. Um, it was pretty cool. Um, in the middle, like, um, I'm in the middle team with them, and we just played softball. And uh, that was how we met. And, I, of course, I had seen them around campus and things like that. So I was just like, yeah, man, I already know these guys, and I've developed some trust, so why not? Let's do it. Yeah, you got to have some trust in somebody who's carrying you up a mountain, Diaja. And uh, Benji, Benji, talk about uh, how you ca- had come to know Diaja, uh, and talk a bit about uh, your fraternity as well and the brothers and how this idea came to fruition. Um, well, we, like Diaja said, we met her through um, with, uh, some intramurals, uh, a co-rec wiffle ball tournament we had on our campus, um, and so our fraternity was teamed up with her sorority, and... Um, we uh, and Diaja was actually on our team, and so she pulled up in her wheelchair and was even batting uh, on the team. So that that's how we actually met her, and so we we're all kind of impressed. We're like, okay, you know, like she's not going to let anything stop her. Um, now, how the idea came about is we had actually seen a chapter for a different fraternity do this up in the Northeast. Um, there was a post that had been shared where they had a brother that also had um, cerebral palsy, and they carried him. And I can't remember if the idea started with myself or um, Cesar Ramirez, but one of us was just like, hey, what if we did this? And then uh, I remember pushing the idea to um, some of the members that I knew, 
in her sorority, and eventually just they got the baby D, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. So we set up a time to go. And we love doing these segments because, well, the media loves to cast millennials in a certain light, young people in a certain light, and I live in a college town, and I've never been more impressed by a generation and I hate seeing older people looking at younger people and saying, ah, back when we were better kids, life was better, and you all stink. I mean, that's just what older people always do to younger people. But I've witnessed quite the opposite. And the same with fraternities, who especially after that terrible UVA story at the Rolling Stone, sort of cast all fraternities as just, well, something they're not. And talk a little bit about uh, Diaja, the, your experience with this fraternity and these brothers, because my goodness, what a story. And how did, how did it make you feel? And then how did you set about going to do this, Diaja? Um, it made me feel awesome. You know, just that um, a group of guys, you know, just wanted to do this for me out of, out of the compassion of their hearts. You know, it's, um, I was, I posted on Facebook yesterday. I was like, it's the smallest things in life um, that make individuals happy and bring about the greatest amounts of happiness <laughs> so just for these guys to like you know spend some time out of their day to actually you know help this little this little goal of mine this little dream of mine to come true and you know um, give away some um some sweat and some muscle <laughs> to do this for me it was just awesome i can't Words can't even describe. When I got to the top, I was like, "Wow!" And Benji, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game up there. It is, and you know, you said something so wonderful, and that is, in the end, it's something we try and talk about regularly on this show. If you want to really go after social justice in this country, do something really radical. Help a total stranger. Do something wonderful and beautiful for another person. And if we all did that every day, we would have social justice coming at us so darn fast. So darn fast in every way, shape, and form. Benji, talk about how hard it was, or not hard it was, to enlist a bunch of guys to do this. Give me just a short answer here. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and then talk about the actual walk. Um, honestly, it was really simple. I just mentioned to a few of the guys, and they said, let's do it. Uh, there wasn't really any challenge to it. Um, so I was like, hey, we're going to carry the uh, Aja up this mountain. And they're like, all right, let's go. Just tell me in time. Well, hold that thought. And by the way, that's why I knew it would be a short answer, because that's the American spirit, frankly. There's no committees. There's no Grand Cuba calling the shots. A couple of guys go, hey, let's help this beautiful young lady. Let's let her live her dream. And you just went and did it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a fraternity brother and a sorority sister, and these brothers and sisters coming together to achieve a dream. Well, actually, a whole bunch of dreams, actually. Because when we live other people's dreams, through them and with them, we live our own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Benji Richards, 
and Diaja Romes. And this is a story from the University of Central Arkansas. A young lady with cerebral palsy wanted to climb a mountaintop. And some fraternity brothers said, what the heck, let's do this. And so they did it. And Benji, I want to go to you. First of all, what's the name of your fraternity? Give a shout out to the fraternity. I know that matters a lot to y'all. And then what did you what did you do? Talk about what steps you took and then talk about this climb. Um, well, I'm a part of Phi Gamma Delta, or uh, Fiji, um, as we're commonly known as, um, at University of Central Arkansas. And um, in terms of the steps that we took to make it happen, um, really, we, we set a time and a date to go and meet there, and like I collected a few of the guys. Um, the only really outside planning we did was we spent a lot of time discussing how we were going to carry Diaja. Um there was, that was an interesting discussion. We went through different things about trying to figure out how to like bring her to our back and finally ended up settling on just, we'll just piggyback ride her the entire way up. So, or give her a piggyback ride the entire way up. And so what did you do? Switch, switch up, just go from guy to guy. How did you do it? Um, yeah, so we would just, uh, I think I took the first leg and you just start going right up the mountain. Um, and then, Honestly, a lot of us were football players, so this kind of was similar to us as if we were just doing, we were back in uh, the football team just working out doing lunges, but after a while we would, you know, kind of wear out and need a break. We would find a, like a tall standing rock that we could set her on where we wouldn't have to squat down and set her on the ground, and then we would just kind of trade her around like that. And so you, you had how many fellas with you on this walk? I want to say about six. About six. And again, all members of Fiji as well, correct? Yeah. Great. And Diaja, so you, you, get the, you get the call from these guys, and then you realize you're going to be piggybacked up a mountain. Were you a little worried at first? Um, honestly, um, just the type of person I am, I was like, nah, man, um, I'm not worried at all. Of course, there were a couple times where I was like, Oh crap! I might like we might go down, but we're going down together. Yep, so, you're going down together. <laughs> That's some cool. of the rocks were, were slippery, but I was like, no man, we're a team. We got this. If if one goes down, we all go down. And and let's talk about as you're going up that mountain and you're getting up to the top. Uh, talk about that moment when you get to the top of the mountain, Diasha. Uh, we were about a couple feet away from the top, and I was. I was getting anxious. I was like, man, is it really like the pictures? Like, is everybody just hyping this up for no reason? But um, when we got to the top, you know, it was, it was pretty hot because we, we um, started coming up in the middle of the day but, um, and all sweating and stuff. But I was like, wow, the sky is like limitless up here. I feel like I can literally do anything from the top of this mountain. I could scream at the top of my lungs and, like, nobody, like, the sky was listening, you know? It's kind of like when land meets the sky, you didn't you didn't really know where the um, the line was drawn. That's beautiful. So awesome. That's beautiful. You have, and if you could, we'd love to have you send a, a, I'm sure you took some pictures. Send them to our team here, and we'll post them up on the website. Uh, because we can't wait to see them. And so, Benji, you, you, you get up to the top of the mountain. You've never climbed a mountain with a person on your back before. How did it make you feel? Because, I, I, you know, we have the deep feeling on this show that when you do well for others, 
uh, it, it makes you feel better than doing for yourself. Yeah, uh, it was definitely um, pretty exhilarating. Uh, it was really rewarding um, to get her all the way up there. She was really excited. We were a little tired, um, honestly. But, uh, you know, getting up there, you kind of, we hit our second win. We got that, sec- uh, that rush of energy because um, Daza was so um, excited to be up there and, you know, she, you, you're listening to her talk about what it was like and trying to describe it, and that you can imagine that her physical reaction of her just being like, oh, look at all this, it's so cool. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a very rewarding experience being able to get her up there. Now, I heard you guys are planning to do this again. Yes, so we've, we've actually already taken her on two trips since. Um, we were trying to plan one this December, but uh, everyone's back home, so it made it a little difficult. Um, but we actually went to Petty Jean State Park, um, and that's a park here that has a, a waterfall. Um, and we actually got her in the waterfall because she said she wanted to be in it. So that was it involved um, two of us putting her in a chair and swimming her across a pool to get her to the waterfall. Um, and then we took her to Mount Magazine and we hiked her up to the highest or the tallest elevation um, in the state of Arkansas, also. Oh, so you got yourself a real hiking partner there, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and uh, Diaja, for all the folks who, who and we, we do this often here on the show, talk about folks with disabilities, because we, we, we think and deeply believe that all people are children of God and that, well, you know, there's nothing anyone can, can or can't do except what's in their own mind. Talk to all the folks listening to may have, who may have relatives who have cerebral palsy, or suffer from some other uh, 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 some other uh, calamity that occurred early in their life, but that they overcame. That they overcame. Talk about them, Talk to them directly about that, Diaja, if you could. Yeah, you guys. Uh, it can be hard sometimes, you know, um, having a disability and getting um, stereotyped. Oh, you can't do this, or you can't do that. Well, I'm living, breathing proof. Um, that they, the disabled are indeed able and can achieve, achieve great things if you just put your mind to it and, you know, grit and bear it and get down and actually do what you want to do, put those people wrong and, um, you know, just have fun. Um, you know, having a disability has its ups, has its downs, but at the end of the day, you just have to believe that you really want to do something and have the diligence to get it done and have fun, you know. It's all about the happiness in life and getting um, getting as much of it as you can out of life. I mean, because life is short. You can't really wait around um, for someone to do something for you. you got to get out and do it if you really want it. Um, just go for it, man. Yeah, we think here, and we often bump into what I call the bigotry of low expectations, and that is the second somebody has some kind of problem, we set the bar lower on those people, and that's the worst thing to do to folks. Um, And you have set the bar high on yourself, Diaja, and I'm so happy that you not only not see yourself as a victim, but that you are going to live a beautiful and valuable life. And Benji... Talk about what this has done for the fraternity uh, and what it's done for you personally. I, I'd, I'd love to get that, that angle of this story. Um, I definitely think for the fraternity it became a point of pride. Um, different guys have been 
involved in everything. Um, I know, for example, when we did the Pettyjean trip and a bunch of guys realized they couldn't get off work to make it, um, a lot of guys got uh, upset about it. Um, and so it's definitely become something that's like when we can get enough guys to actually plan a sufficient trip, um, they get excited about it. Um, so that's uh, been pretty great. What, and what was the second question? And for you, what did it do for you personally in terms of uh, doing this kind of, just performing this kind of just act of kindness? Um, well, for, for me personally, it was just uh, rewarding. Um, like I said, taking her up there and seeing her get really excited. But um, I think something else that happened um, was after the story went, uh, the story got some attention. Um, and after that happened, um, I uh, was actually receiving emails from uh, graduate brothers or alumni of our fraternity that have um, daughters or sons with cerebral palsy, and they were telling me how they appreciate this, how it means a lot. Um, I've actually met a graduate brother here in the Little Rock area um, that has a daughter with cerebral palsy, and he just talked about how um, it really means a lot, and it really sticks to what our fraternity is supposed to be when we do things like this. So um, to me, it's meant quite a bit. Well, what a great story, and thank you, Diaja, for coming on, and thank you, Benji, as well. It's our random act of kindness story of the week, and we do these every week, and this is as good as it gets. And for anybody who's listening and has an idea or a judgment about this generation, I promise you there are stories after stories. I know here at Ole Miss, I watch what the young people do in terms of charity drives, raising money for, for, for the poor, raising money for kids, teaching literacy. I'm humbled to see those, those young people do what they do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, thank you, Benji. Thank you, Diaja, for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. You bet, and uh, Godspeed to both of you. And by the way, if you want to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories and we love to talk about leadership on this show and we talk to leaders from all walks of life or gather musings or speeches from leaders past present and some future leaders when we talk to young people and now we want to dig into a speech and some helpful advice on how to excel in the workplace from business executive Jack Welch He's retired now, but Welch was formerly chairman and CEO of General Electric for two decades and turned the company into a powerhouse. He's authored a handful of books, including Winning, co-authored by his wife Susie Welch and published in 2005. It focuses on management and how to win in the business world. Over a decade later, this book contains helpful principles for us now 
We'll learn more about how we can be successful in each of our particular workplaces from Jack himself. And so here, Jack talks about how jobs are not one size fits all. And in his book, Welch outlines five things to look for in a job for you. When you look for for a job, be sure you look for people that are like you. They laugh at the jokes you you laugh at. They think the way you think. They have the same sensibilities. If you're a nerd, go hang out with nerds. But don't end up confusing the issue. Never have to put on a persona to be in the job you pick. Uh, As far as uh, opportunities are concerned, always go to a company where there are smarter people around you than than you, where you can learn, where you can grow. Don't go to a place where you're going to be the smartest person in the place. It doesn't do much for, for you. Now, I'm all for, for, for startups and, and entrepreneurs, and that may be right there if you've got the idea and you've got the vision and you're going after it, and I applaud that totally. But if you're going to a company, that's worthwhile. Options are the third thing we talk about. If you're going to a company uh, and you're not sure exactly what's right, I would go to a company that has a brand. A brand counts. Uh, whether it's Microsoft, J&J, you, you, you pick the company. Wells Fargo, you pick the company. You pick a company that has a brand because if things aren't right for you in your first job, your brand will be very important as you look to the next job. And people in the chemical industry, we used to always want, want to hire people from DuPont. They probably weren't any smarter than anybody else, but we thought they were. And the same thing's true of Microsoft. People out here want, want to get a Microsoft person. Yeah, they probably have a pot full of duds, but nevertheless, it's it's a uh, it's a wonderful it's another one of those chits you have. But having options based on the brand is is important. Uh, the the fourth one is um, ownership. Own the company you're going to. Don't take a responsibility for the job job you take. Don't blame it on somebody else. My mother wanted me to always live here. Uh, I've got a spouse and I can't travel. If, you, if that's the case, make that deal going in knowing it. But don't then come home and kick the dog or punch the wall because that, that's what's happening. And finally, work content. Be sure the work turns your crank. Don't go to the job for an extra 10 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever the number is. Go to the job because the work turns your crank really turns you on, excites you every day. That's what you got to look for. Own the job, take work that excites you, and brand counts. So maybe attach yourself to one. And I love what he said about working with people who are smarter than you. That is just, that's so smart. And Welch, well, he went on to elaborate on this point. And here he tells an embarrassing story about his wife, Susie, and explains how important it is to be comfortable in your own work environment. But you, you wouldn't want to go to a place where you couldn't be yourself. I don't think you want to reflect, you don't want to mirror on any, any, everyone you, you look at looking like you. I think you do, though, want to be in a place. We, we tell a story in the, in the book, and I'll now confess it's Susie. Uh, we talk about this woman who went to look for a job, and she was looking at consulting firms at the time. She was uh, I think getting her MBA from the other school on the East Coast. And um, she showed up at this place, and she 
came to this one place and the three people were waiting on the top of the stairs and she walked in she fell and did a face plant like that and she said hi I'm Gracie the ballerina now the ballet teacher and the three of them looked at her like this you know what are you weird <laughs> at the end of the day they gave her an offer and another consulting firm gave her an offer she was much more comfortable going the place that she didn't look weird with a, front, with a line which I think is funny and she thought was funny. Hi, I'm Grace, the ballet teacher, as she did a face plan. And they were quite serious and stiff about the whole event and it didn't feel like a very good place to hang out. Both consulting firms were great, uh, top three, and uh, why not go with the place you wanted to be? I don't think it, be, it relates to, to, to a personal style as much as just sensibilities. If the sensibilities are the same, like you, if, if, if you're somebody that likes to have fun, relax a lot, work like hell, but have fun doing it, and you go with a bunch of pompous stiffs, that's never going to be any fun for you. And, and, and they can be all different shapes and colors. That isn't the issue. It's the sensibilities. So true. And by the way, that was her good luck that she fell in front of those folks and they displayed their character and their nature because they, they, didn't, they didn't go with it, roll with it, and accept her grace in making fun of herself. They were stiffs, and she didn't want to work with stiffs. And by the way, if you are a stiff, you want to work with stiffs. And if you like uptight, you'll love uptight. And by the way, I went to a law school where people went to every kind of firm. Some loved the power firm where you couldn't even whisper. It was so proper and so staid, and it was so white shoe. But that's what, that's what those people wanted. That's who they were. And it's not a slam on those people. It's just the right fit. Find the right fit. Great advice from Jack. And although you certainly want to find a work schedule that lets you have some balance in life, because now he's talking about work balance, Welch tells us a cautionary tale about being presumptuous. We, we, we tell this story in the book of this job where a friend, a friend of ours was running a small operation, 60 people, one of the women in the job had a second child. She had been in the company eight years. She was a real star. She came in and said, look, I, I want to work at home on Fridays and Mondays and come in the office for three days a week. Is that okay? And they said, absolutely. You, you're doing a great job. You're doing it fine. And they, they let her do it. Immediately, down the hall, Prances, this young man, six months out of uh, school. And he says, I'd like to get Friday off and Monday off. And uh, the boss said, why? He said, I want to practice, perfect my yoga practice. And the boss, she said, no, no way. And he said, you mean to say you're making a judgment and you're, and you're not qualified, I'll tell you that right now, to make a judgment between motherhood is more valuable than my yoga practice. You have no right to do that. And she said, I'm not making that judgment. I'm making the judgment that you haven't earned a thing in the six months you've been here, therefore you don't get the flexibility. You're barely doing your job now. <laughs> so that's the way it's always going to be. It's you deliver, you get flexibility. You don't, if every time your boss has a report or needs something, desperately wants to get it, and you say, I can't be there, things aren't going to go right for you. You've got to find the systems that allow you to over-deliver and then earn flexibility. So true and great advice. Great story, by the way. 
And it is presumptuous to be at some place six months and ask for your raise and ask for this or that. Just do the time. Create value first. Then start making some demands. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Jack Welch. Advice to young people. Leading always and teaching always. More with Jack Welch after these messages. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. To listen to all that we do, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories, and we continue with Jack Welch's candid speech on the workplace, tips about how to get ahead and win, but more importantly, tips on how to lead. And we love talking about leadership here on Our American Stories. Before we came to this segment, we had Welch talking about flexibility and who earns it and who doesn't. And that gets to the topic of rewards and celebrating and rewarding employees. And here's Jack Welch talking about that subject. Here's one of the problems. If, if, if you ask managers tomorrow, if you, you all went around and did a survey of middle managers and top managers, you, and you asked the question, do you celebrate enough? You would be shocked at how everyone would say, no, not here, we never celebrate, you know, it never happens. Uh, one of the things you can do as managers when, when you go out is have small celebrations for every little victory on the way to reaching your vision. Uh, Excite people. Give them better jobs. Send them off to training. Do things for them that aren't particularly right on the button, monetary, but they're recognition. And you've got to do that as, but again, plaques don't substitute for checks. And so you've got to have a combination of checks and plaques. And uh, you can't, and you can't, in investment banking, it's mainly checks. But in most corporations, people try and get that balance right. And recognition, awards, patents, all that stuff can be big celebrations. And I think that's the job of the manager, to make to come up with that balance that feels right to your team, that turns them on. Yep, finding that balance between tangible rewards like a check and the intangible that for some people is just as important, if not more important, and that's that personal recognition. And that personal pat on the back, especially in front of your peers. Finding that balance is so important as a leader in order to build a team that functions and grows together. The day you become a leader, it becomes about them, right? If it becomes about them, your job is to walk around with a can of water in one hand and a can of fertilizer in the other hand. And think of your team as seeds and try and build a garden. Now you will end up with some weeds. And you're going to have to cut out some weeds. But that's your job. It's about building these people. You know, in my case, if, if, if they were dealing with me, they'd want to make me feel 6'4 with hair. And that's what you're going to want to try and do. You're going to try and do that with your team. 
And, and only you will know the team. Some people will be more motivated by this, some will be more motivated by this, but you'll be the, if you will, the orchestra conductor that will bring it all together. And I can't tell you what mix of what is the right answer. I know one thing, money counts. <laughs> you bet. In the end, you can pat people on the head all day long, but if you don't start giving them raises, you're going to have some problems or some bonuses. Welch encourages managers to reward good behavior. This helps make sure everyone is working hard. One of the things you, that you'll find in a company, somebody does a great job, and, and, and you say, let's give them something for doing that great job. You'll have this incredible experience. They'll say, the guy will say, I can't. I, I don't want to make the others feel bad. Well, if you can't identify what they did and justify the great thing they did by rewarding them, you shouldn't do it. But if you, if you can do it, you should do it and make it transparent as can be. It doesn't mean the others can't get something someday for something. But this idea of leveling everything, it's like the companies that give 100 or 500 stock options to everyone. It's the dumbest game in town. It's like having a dental plan. I mean, what do you gain if everybody gets it? There's, there's no evaluation. There's no differentiation. People, people know who's, who's carrying the freight, and they know who is not carrying the freight. In, in our company, for example, despite this system, after seven years, the top people thought we were tough enough on weak performers. 90-plus percent of the blind survey said we were. As we went down in the organization, there was a massive complaint that we weren't tough enough on weak performers. The people closest to the work know who's pulling the, the oars in the boat. And so they're mad as hell when somebody comes in two hours late and they have to cover for them and do this and that. So the idea of being rigorous is something that absolutely increases the morale of a company. It does not decrease the morale of a company. No one likes a company or a unit that carries along. Just think of the rowboat. Four on each side. Two aren't working on one side. What happens to the boat? Goes right around in circles. And everyone in the organization knows who's carrying the freight. Your job is to find out as much as they know. You bet. And that's, you know, this goes down right into the heart of our cultural problems from school on, and we're talking grade school, leveling everything out. No, you got to be able to distinguish. And it's not nice. It, it hurts some people's feelings. Good. Good, you got to say A work is A work and C work is C work. By the way, this is the problem with our whole education establishment. Every teacher gets paid the same. How do you attract talent to a universe with a great teacher and the crummy teacher get exactly the same? You're never going to accept. You're never going to really attract talent to a situation like that. Jack Welch emphasizes the importance, the necessity of giving employees proper feedback on how they're doing. People aren't being told what what they're doing well and how they can improve. The evaluation processes aren't frequent enough. Uh, we get into this, I'm too kind to evaluate my team. This morning I was in, in San Jose with a, about five, 500 executives from startup companies down there and, and some pretty strong tech companies, Intel and others. And I asked the 400 people, how many people thought they had straightforward relationships in their company with their peers and with their associates? I didn't get four hands, four hands. That's frightening. It's sort of frightening that people are sitting in an organization and don't feel 
that people are laying it on straight and telling it like it's... Welch talks about a better way to improve employees' performance by giving feedback in order to avoid surprises. Why is grading and differentiation okay in the fourth grade through getting an MBA, but it in no way is applicable to adults? It's nuts. Why you would end up having this false kindness where you don't tell people where they stand until you run into trouble. So my view is, take care of the top 20, and this isn't a permanent thing, it changes all the time, but take that top 20, make them feel loved, hug them, give them cash, give them uh, rewards in the soul and the wallet, do everything for them. That middle 70, show them what they need to do to get in the top 20, and that bottom 10, tell them, not that they, why they basically should move on. And don't do it in a guillotine job. Have a conversation that goes over a year or so about what their shortfalls are. Tell them they're in the bottom 10. Don't give them a raise of any kind. Don't give them 2 3%, that fake raise that keeps people hanging around. Uh, <laughs> cut off the, the, the salary issue. And then ask them to leave and say, let's over the next several months work together to get you in the right place. That's so much better than these crazy situations. Companies in, in the valley here, they run into trouble. What do they do? They're going to cut costs. They, they're going to have a layoff. They walk into people and they say, look, Joe, Mary, we got to cut you, uh, cut you back. we got to take you out. Uh, we need to cut costs now. And they say, why us? And they say, well, you weren't that good. And then they say, but we've been here 12 years and nobody ever told us that. That's what happens in this false kindness thing. People get misled. And then if you do it too late in your career, I maintain that not having differentiation is the cruelest form of manager, the cruelest thing. If you have responsibility, if you lead people, they should know where they stand. Couldn't agree more. How do you, how do you develop that talent? And my goodness, if you've got to lay that talent off at the age of 40, oh my, it's over. To finish up, Welch talks about how in order for employees to work towards a common goal, they have to have a solid mission and proper values. Mission and values are the most gobbledygook conversation pieces in companies. I mean, a mission statement ought to be so clear. It ought to exactly know where you're going to go, define it clearly and go after it, not have this mission of uh, goodness and all these other words that get in like mission statements. Make it very clear what you want to be. And then have the values, which I call behaviors. Values are a misused word. Values are behaviors. The behaviors you want to achieve that mission. And then you measure and reward, as I said, in the soul and the wallet, those behaviors. And when people don't exhibit those behaviors, and you want them, and you finally have to part company with people because they didn't exhibit the behaviors and values you wanted, you can't say that they went home to spend more time with personal time with the family. You've got to say, here's why these people didn't make it. They're good people. They're this and that. But they didn't have our values. One of the craziest things you see in, in, in corporate America, is it's run by lawyers in some ways, where, where you end up with integrity by uh, violations. And people say, well, we had to let so-and-so go. Uh, they they, uh, they want to spend more time at home. You got to say, you got to hang them publicly. 
for doing bad stuff. You've got to set the tone of your values and your behavior. And you, if you're doing it right, you can't be afraid to put it out there. And so I think that you set a mission, you set the behaviors, you operate in an open, candid, as you said, takes time, build trust, transparent fashion, and you give every employee voice and dignity, and you've got a foundation that means something. And great advice on leadership. Jack Welch former CEO of General Electric. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. Johnny Carson, well, he legitimized late-night television. He launched hundreds of careers dominated the ratings landscape, and taught everyone how to do what he did. Only no one could do it like he did it. And nobody ever has. And so for the hour, we're going to spend time on this man, all the people he influenced, and most importantly, with his great generosity, all the people he championed, all, all of the artists in particular, and all of the comedians. So many of whom wouldn't be here without Johnny Carson. In 1962... Back when Johnny Carson hosted ABC's Who Do You Trust? A game show he launched with a newly hired unknown sidekick, Ed McMahon. He made this announcement to the world. I go over to uh, on The Tonight Show on NBC starting October the 1st as the host of that show. And Ed goes with me as the announcer on the show. So I'm going to And so it started. A legend was born. And the question became, as in every artistic endeavor... By the way, this happens when a marriage starts. It starts this kind of conversation when a business starts or any kind of partnership. If you're lucky enough to have one that endured like Carson's did with Ed McMahon. What were they going to talk about? What were they going to do? So as we're walking down, I said, how do you see my role down here tonight? And he said, Ed, I don't even know how I see my own role. Let's just go down and entertain the hell out of them. kind of an emotional thing for me because I've known about this show for a long time and the newspapers and the magazines and I've probably been interviewed 150 times in the last nine months since I've known about this and you get kind of charged up I don't mean to be maudlin about it but I know that tonight a lot of people a lot of my friends are watching all over the country and I only have one feeling as I, I stand here knowing that so many people are watching I want my man there <laughs> And he started right there with his trademark self-deprecation. He loved to make fun of himself. And I think he put everyone at ease because of it. Carson was born in Iowa on October 23, 1925. And when he was eight, his family moved to Norfolk, Nebraska, where her father, Kit Carson, 
worked for the local power company. Johnny had a younger brother, Dick, and an older sister, Catherine, who was the favorite of the mother, Ruth. Mrs. Carson later said that she didn't like boys. They were dirty and nasty and not pleasant, she said. Actually, she's pretty right. We are pretty dirty and we are pretty unpleasant. I'm not sure about the nasty part. In the later years, when he revisited his childhood home, he explained to Wayne, the boy who was the current resident and whom you're about to hear from, the lengths to which he would go to get his mom's attention. Hi, how you doing? You're Wayne, right? I met you before. Hasn't changed too much, outside of interior decoration. Dad, where'd your dad put in that fireplace? My dad put that fireplace in, and I used to sit with a deck of cards. I did magic when I was about your age. Every place in the house, I had a deck of cards in my hand. Drive my mother crazy. My mother would be upstairs in the bathroom. Now, you may not believe this, but I would go into the bathroom and say, take a card. <laughs> that was Carson. By the way, he had taped this, played it on a special. He'd return to his home, his old home, to see what it was like and... Just the way he dealt with his kid, you know, one of the unique qualities we'll learn about Carson as we go on, no matter who sat in that chair, presidents, ordinary Americans doing bird calls, singers like Frank Sinatra, rock artists, he treated them all the same. None of them got preferred status or diminished status. He just played it even. And he just loved, he loved, loved, loved people. As Johnny got older, he had new reasons for perfecting his magic which became his all-consuming interest, where he learned the craft of illusion, of becoming bigger, of projecting and misdirecting and giving you a greater sense of something that maybe wasn't always entirely him. I took up magic uh, when I was young yes. because I was somewhat shy and within myself, and I thought, well, that would be a good way to go to parties. Yeah. You know, I read those ads, yeah. you know, be and the life girls. of the party and get girls. Yeah. Mainly I got it, uh, did it to get girls. <laughs> Neither one worked well. But lots of people do that. They'd like to get up and perform. You can be the center of attention without being yourself as such. Yeah, you'll hear about that. We'll be doing uh, next week an hour on Al Pacino and his craft, and you'll learn that Pacino had the same thing to say. So many of these guys, you would not think it. It's very counterintuitive. But they do all the things they do because they're shy. This is the only way they can communicate to folks. Lots of musicians share that same characteristic. Arsenio Hall, host of the breakout late-night Arsenio Hall show from the 1990s, illustrates, well, one of the other things that Carson had going for him, and it wasn't just humility. It was a near-perfect sense of timing. He had the perfect barometer in his head of when to go and when to stay out. He could save you if the show needed it, or he could let you do your thing. His ego could let you do your thing. And this is what made Carson great in the end. Joan Rivers, well, she agreed with him. He knew where you were going. He knew when to come in and say, how fat was she? He knew when not to say it. You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. <laughs> You knew you were bringing your little gift to him of a joke, and you knew he was going to open it and love it. Bumping in and out here, you're going to be hearing many of the people who sang on The Tonight Show, and you're going to be hearing their performances. This is Cindy Lauper playing her big hit time after time. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on Johnny Carson. You'll hear from Jerry Seinfeld, Drew Carey, and so many other big, big 
modern comedian and modern star. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. I've got a song, I ain't got no melody. I'm gonna sing it to my friend. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Billy Preston. That was him singing on The Tonight Show set. We had just heard from Arsenio Hall and Joan Rivers about Johnny Carson's real, genuine Genuine gift of generosity. Here's Jerry Seinfeld's very first appearance on The Tonight Show. My folks are moving to Florida. Uh, They don't want to move to Florida, but they're in their 60s, and that's the law. (laughs) (laughs) Long Island. I think you evicted from Long Island, aren't you, at 60? They have like a leisure police of some kind. (laughs) Get the golf clubs and get in the van, folks. Listen to Carson laughing. See, the thing is... He wanted his guys to do great when they appeared. Some stars don't want to see the people sitting next to him do better than them. This was the key to Carson. Leno couldn't replicate this. Letterman couldn't replicate this because their egos were too big. Colbert, Stewart, loved them, but they never made their guests funnier. And this is why none of them held a candle to Carson. And they all looked up to Carson as a genius, but didn't quite understand the, the reason he was. Want to play a, a clip now, and Carson was so generous with this guy... Uh, every time he came on, Carson would just set him up and set him up and set him up. And it's the one and only Rodney Dangerfield. Smoking, that's another one. Yeah. Try to stop smoking. That's a beauty, huh? Well, with cigarettes, my wife and I, we made a deal, my wife and I. We yeah. only smoke after sex. I've got the same packed house since 1975. <laughs> what bothers me is my wife. She's up to three packs a day. <laughs> Tell you the truth, and my wife and I, we never have sex. No. Now we get undressed, we can't stop laughing, you know. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing, when my wife does have sex, she screams. Ooh, especially when I walk in on her. <laughs> and on and on. I mean, Dangerfield could knock out a hundred jokes in a in, in a seven to eight minute hit. We hear now from a grateful and emotionally moved. Drew Carey describing his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Curtain opens, you know, Johnny Carson introduces me, and it's just like I dreamed it. It's just exactly like I dreamed it. I go on a stage, I hit the mark. Then he says my favorite thing on the menu, it's a hot dog with cheese and bacon. Yeah, not enough nitrates in a hot dog, gotta put some bacon on top of there. And for an extra dollar, they'll put chili on top of the whole thing. For people who don't care anymore. 
I remember seeing Johnny Carson holding onto the desk. He's holding onto the desk because he's laughing so hard so he doesn't fall off the chair. Because he's like, he's like convulsing. That's the kind of food just marches right down your throat, you know? <laughs> Follow me, boys. We're going to the heart. <laughs> and he goes like this. And I go, who, me? And he goes, yeah, you. And I, I'm like, oh, no, nobody gets called over for the tonight. That's a big thing. It's like a religious experience. And then after that, my career was made. You're funny as hell. Thanks, I appreciate that. You Thank really you. are. Thanks. Uh, oh, you too. Yeah. And you know, he said you too back to Carson, and Carson laughed. He didn't say, hey, kid, what are you doing? And he laughed and, you know, just naturally. If you're like me, when you think of Carson, memories of your family pop into your head too. Because nighttime is one of those rare times in our day when the family can get together under one roof. Here's late night host Conan O'Brien. My dad would always say the same thing. Let's just watch the monologue. We'll watch a little bit of the monologue. I'm laughing and my father's laughing. And how, mu- how often can you watch something with your father, you know? Can- he crossed generations, I think. Yeah, and especially making a father and a son laugh together. So many shows now separate generations out, and Carson's brought them together, a unique talent. In 30 years, you'd be hard-pressed to guess who Johnny ever voted for. And this was another one of his gifts, unlike so many of the late-night hosts, too, who let you know who they vote for, thus alienating half the audience. They just tune out. Well, that's the way it should be, actually. Why alienate your audience? Why alienate your own people? Here's Jay Leno. You never knew Johnny's politics. Johnny would come out and equally make fun of everybody and never question anybody's patriotism. It was always about what they said or did. President Ford is considering an income tax cut for people in lower tax brackets. That's that's the good news. Now, the bad news is he still hasn't figured out how they can get an income. (laughs) Finally, some good political news. Bill Clinton has laryngitis, lost his voice. And I do have a late-breaking news bulletin for you. World War III was just declared. No, no, I'm I'm just kidding, of course, not really. I just wanted to get Reagan out of bed to watch the monologue. (laughs) You know, in order to avoid looking partisan, Carson would avoid, well, almost any invitations from any big political figures. Hillary and Bill, he declined the invitation. He also had said once, I was photographed at the White House with Hubert Humphrey, and I'm sorry I did that. What was obvious then, and is even more obvious now, is that Carson's unwillingness to allow his personal politics to insult his audience is the kind of old-school showbiz class that's all but extinct today. Here's Johnny on that very subject. I think one of the dangers, if you are a comedian, which basically I am, if you start to take yourself too seriously um, and start to comment on social issues, your sense of humor suffers somewhere. Uh, I try not to, uh, and we've had some criticism on the show, some critics over the years says, well, the show has no great sociological value, it's not controversial, it's not deep. The Tonight Show basically is um, to amuse people, to make them laugh. It's a hard thing to admit with that much power. I mean, there weren't many wealthier guys in Hollywood, and I think so often today people get out of their lane and try and get into another lane. Musicians do this all the time. They're singing, you've paid your ticket, you've paid your dollar, and there they go. 
and you just want to tell them shut up. They'll opine about the war, and and it just why do it? Why bother? Carson, no such thing. In addition to hosting the show, Johnny loved to appear in sketches. He learned a lot from the Carol Burnett show in this way, and he also created a stable characters, characters through which he could disappear and engage in a more daring brand of humor, one of them being Karnak the Great. A losing streak. A losing streak. (laughs) Describe a man running naked after chugging prune juice. He didn't mind making a complete idiot of himself. He'd wear that hat in that scene. He would walk up. That little Alibaba music would play. He would come on over, do the pratfall over the desk. Every time, trip, it would break. He'd sit down, and they did this every week on Tuesday night. Forever. Never let it go. Here's Conan O'Brien on why he thinks we all loved and watched Johnny Carson. I don't think anybody was watching Johnny Carson to rate how his material was. Do you know what I mean? You liked him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. You liked that man so much, and you went with him. I think we liked him so much because one of the things Carson did, and did beautifully, was share his flaws, even the painful parts of his life, with his audience. Here's Carson on his, his divorce I suppose the lowest, lowest point I had was when I, when I, was my first divorce. Because my children were quite young. And that sense of failure uh, overcomes you. Uh, that you have uh, been less than you should have as a husband or a father. Mm-hmm. And those guilt feelings can be overwhelming at times. Especially if the children are young. That's probably one of the big low points I had. Well, it ends up he had more divorces. And he shared them with the audience. And most importantly, he allowed his staff to heckle him, and he even heckled himself. The decision you have to make is how do you want to handle it? You don't want to be bitter about it. You don't wish to uh, do any jokes that are cruel or to hurt anyone. So you try to turn it and take the the joke on yourself if you can. And have fun with the situation. Uh, And that's what you do. You just sit and you... It's a gut instinct. What a gut he had... Here's Johnny, well, cracking jokes on Johnny. I heard from my cat's lawyer today. <laughs> my, my cat wants 12000 a week for tender vittles. My cat wants 12000 a week for tender vittles. Johnny's making fun of how much money he's going to have to pay out. He's making fun of an acrimonious divorce in which someone he's been married to, maybe a couple of years, is taking, well, probably half of everything. And... What kind of men do this? And this is truly the greatness of Johnny Carson. Today for the hour, we're going to talk about the man. We're going to hear his work, his art. We're going to play lots more clips. You can just hear, well, our favorites. And you're listening to Tiny Tim because it was no kind of musical act. Johnny didn't parade before the American public. And none was more comical and entertaining and endearing than Tiny, Tim, him, her, whatever. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. I've worked hard and I fight hard for the old red, white, and blue. And I'll die a whole lot harder if it comes to where I have to. I'm a flag-waving patriotic nephew of my Uncle Sam, a rough This is Lee Habib. You're listening to Johnny Cash singing on The Tonight Show. And we had just listened to Tiny Tim. That's some really smart booking. You got to love that about Johnny. So often people will just go with a certain musical style. A, they're cutting off their audience. And B, who the heck are they to say one kind of music's better? Just play it all. And he let them all come through. He was really ecumenical and generous that way. And, you know, we couldn't get over it over the break. And we said, we just need some more, well, Rodney Dangerfield. Now, you kid, I know my wife cheats on me. Every time I come home, the parrot says, quick, out the window, you know? I mean, my house, my house, I can't relax. Really? I, got my, I got a dog, he drives me nuts. Oh. I got a dumb dog, you know, we call him Egypt. Every room, he leaves a pyramid. <laughs> my kids, they don't help either. You no know? good. Huh? Ooh, no, my kids, they're real smart kids I got, you know. Yeah. Well, the other day I told my kid, I said, someday you'll have children of your own. He said, so are you. <laughs> Mean kid, a very mean kid. He scots takes worms to the sidewalk, then watches the birds get hernias. Are you kidding me? Mean kid. Mean kid. And my daughter, too. She's no bargain either, my daughter. You kidding? Well, she's been picked up so many times, she's starting to grow handles. I mean, you're kidding. Her graduation book, her picture is horizontal. It's ridiculous. My daughter, they call her Federal Express, you know. What's that? Yeah, when she goes to a guy's apartment, she absolutely positively has to be there over there. <laughs> I mean, I tell you, trouble because they play around so young today, very young. I was talking to my doctor. You know my doctor, Dr. Vinnie Boombach. You know my doctor? Yes. Well, he told me last week in his office he got six cases of VD. I mean, he's all right now, you know. <laughs> Oh, he's a strange doctor. Strange doctor. Oh, uh, I asked him if my heart was strong enough to sex. He told me not if I join in, you know? <laughs> oh, it's right, Doc. But everyone wants love. Love is the answer, John. Everyone's looking for love. Deep love. A lifetime of deep love, you know? I'm looking for a shallow half hour, you know? <laughs> and there you have it. What Carson would do is just set him up. He'd just ask a question and let Rodney take the stage. How many guys do that? They get in the way. About the closest Carson came to explaining himself is in this vintage Tonight Show clip in which he's talking to celebrity interviewer Rona Barrett. She takes the opportunity to ask him questions, which, for a while, he answers with surprising honesty. But then, well, she asks one question too many. Here we go. I grew up in the Midwest, kind of a normal, I guess what you'd call normal upbringing, you know, the part of the country. Uh, my, my folks were supportive in what I wanted to do. Did you always know what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. From oh, the very yeah. beginning? Oh, sure. How old? Well, I must have been about 12, 13 years old. I knew I wanted to, to entertain. You like the attention? Oh, sure. But why? Why you? I mean, why at age 12 or 13? 
because I was in a play or something and I got up and I did something and people laughed and all of a sudden you say hey that sounds pretty good so it makes you the center of attention yes but why did you want the attention hmm? why did you want the attention why did I want the attention because I was shy ah because I was shy oh that sounds like a, a ambivalence right no on stage you see when you're on stage in front of an audience you are kind of in control when you're off of the stage or in a situation where there are a lot of people you're not in control and I felt awkward so I went into show business thinking it would give me a little more I could overcome that shyness where do you think the shyness emanated from I, I bought it in Chicago <laughs> enough, enough Johnny was saying with this line of inquiry though he let it go pretty far and again most hosts wouldn't let the person sitting there ask them questions. Again, Johnny's generous nature, but also this great gut to know what is entertaining and also when not to be entertaining. Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld, who ended his own show on his own terms years later, understands more than most what Carson really meant to late night TV. You know, for my entire career, I've heard comedians in bars debate over who do you think is going to get the Tonight Show after Johnny leaves. What nobody realized is that when you left, you were going to pack it up and take it with you, which is what he did, because that show never existed again. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. There never was a Tonight Show. It was Carson. Leno took it over. And now we've got, well, we know who we've got there now. Jimmy Fallon's doing his best. And these guys are good. But uh, Carson was unique. And it was, I think, because he just didn't try too hard. He just laid back and let others fill the slot. Carson walked away from The Tonight Show after 30 years at the top of the late-night ratings and of his own volition. By the way, we should do an entire hour on people who actually retired, well, way too long. And how many actually retire at the right time? I mean, think about it. Think of athletes. Think of Michael Jordan. I mean, he stepped away, and then he went and played baseball. And he looked ridiculous. And then he came back to the NBA, and he was getting the ball stripped of him, and he just looked terrible. Trying to think of the boxers who didn't. I mean, Joe Lewis kept boxing. It was just a tragedy. Muhammad Ali kept going. I mean, who did? Rocky Marciano retired right. Johnny Carson retired right. Led Zeppelin just said, you know what? We're done. John Bonham died, and they said, let's not look ridiculous. But I, I really, that's about it. Jesse, you can think of anybody? only person that comes to mind right now is Tiger Woods. He should probably hang out up right about now. I think right about now is a good time. <laughs> a very good time. And then all these bands that just keep touring perpetually in their 80s, they're going to be out there touring. That's just... Yeah, the Stones might want to consider maybe one more tour and then calling it good. Yeah, the Steel Wheelchairs Tour. <laughs> We had, a, we had a couple of buddies one night. We were going to see the Stones about a year ago, and we started making up songs that would be age-appropriate. Because, you know, they're, you know, like just waiting on a friend, we, we thought that would be better if it was just called Just Waiting on the End. <laughs> and, and just so on and so forth. Hey, hey, you, get off of my cloud, was like, hey, hey, you, kids, get out of my yard. And, and it was, I know, I got to stop. <laughs> I got to keep my day job. Well, when we come back, we're going to be doing some more and playing a lot more from Johnny Carson. And uh, we'll do a little bit more Ronnie Dangerfield because, well, of all the folks that Carson ever had, well, that was his favorite. Dwight Yoakam, by the way, was born today. He had the most musical appearances of anybody in the Tonight Show history. 
And we'll play a little of his music coming in off of the Tonight Show. And we're also going to play Jimmy Stewart's remarkable poem to his dog, Bo. Stewart, who had always talked about his, his dog fondly with Carson, gave him a buzz one night and said, Johnny, I want to come on. And by the way, that was what the other beautiful thing about Carson. The guys did not come on to plug their movies. I mean, Carson didn't allow for that. You came on, you did a great eight or ten minutes of entertainment. That's that. And yet, if you had a movie every once in a while, he'd let you plug it. But you better give him a solid eight, nine, or ten appearances first. And you better be good. You're going to hear Jimmy Stewart's remarkable performance. And then you'll hear, of course, Bette Midler's last performance on the final night of The Tonight Show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Kenny Rogers singing on The Tonight Show. Lee Habib. More on Johnny Carson when we come back. Out the window to boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, Son, I've made my life out of reading people's faces, knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Carson died in 2005. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Our American Stories. That's Dwight Yoakam and Buck Owens appearing together on the set of The Tonight Show. Again, every kind of musical style at... at Appreciated and admitted. Carson held back nobody. Again, Tiny Tim we had just broken into before. Carson again was born on this day in history in 1925. He died on January 23, 2005 from emphysema. He was 79 years old. And looking back on Carson's life, his biographer Bill Zeem had this to say on Carson's formula for success. In the end, he put out a better product across the board, and it was because he was smart enough to know how to give room to funny people or to engaging people and and let them shine. And let them shine he did. You know, one of the great moments, I think, in late-night history, Jimmy Stewart would come on regularly, and he would just come on and tell stories. He, He was way past the point of his career where he was doing a movie every year, and it was just wonderful, and he was always prepared with something you could tell that was rehearsed, often even written. And in this particular clip, Johnny invites Jimmy on to talk about, well, his dog, Bo. And Jimmy, you're going to hear a little fumbling, and you're going to hear Carson crack a joke. It's because Jimmy's sort of fumbling with his paper. He pulls out of his suit 
Because this one he has to read, Jimmy Stewart. Here we go. I just, uh, I, I just thought I'd uh, write, write a poem. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yes. Do you want to hear it? Now, this, uh, uh, <laughs> this, this, well, we could always start the, <laughs> they could always start the wedding late, yeah, I guess. <laughs> now, now the, the title of it is, is Bo. That's, that's the name of the dog. He never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball, or he felt like it. But, but mo- mostly, he didn't come at all. When, when he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag, but when you were with him, things sure didn't drag. He'd dig up a rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. <laughs> he bit lots of folks from day to day. The, the, the delivery boy was his favorite prey. <laughs> the gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. <laughs> he set the house on fire, but the story's long to tell. The, Suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. And on evening walks, and Gloria took him, he was always first out the door. The old one and I brought up the rear because our bones were sore. And he'd charge up the street with Mom hanging on. What a beautiful pair they were. And if it was still light and the tourists were out, they created a bit of a stir. But every once in a while, he'd stop in his tracks and with a frown on his face, look around. It was just to make sure that the old one was there to follow him where he was bound. We're, we're early to betters in our house. I guess I'm the first to retire. And as I'd leave the room, he'd look at me and get up from his place by the fire. He knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while. and. He'd push it under the bed with his nose, and I'd dig it out with a smile. But before very long, he'd tire of the ball, and he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd feel him climb upon our bed and lie between us, and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd feel this stare, and... I'd wake up and he'd be sitting there and I'd reach out to stroke his hair and sometimes I'd feel him sigh and I think I know the reason why. He'd, he'd wake up at night and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things and he'd be glad to have me near. And now he's dead. And. There are nights when I think I feel him climb upon her bed and lie between us, and I pat his head. And there are nights when I, when I think I feel that stare, and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair, and he's not there. Oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. Thank you. 
It was the one time I ever saw Carson cry. He held back the tears. So did Jimmy Stewart. I don't think Carson was expecting that. I don't think anybody was, and that was the beauty of that show. Tune in the late night and see if you ever experienced that. And it was always possible on the Carson show. You could laugh, but my goodness, he could also make you cry. Dennis, you're calling in from Chicago. Your moment with your dad. Share that with us if you could. Absolutely, Lee. Thanks for the opportunity to share this story with you and your audience. So when I was a little boy, first and second grade, I would often get up late in the night, late for me, and sneak out, and there would be my dad watching the Johnny Carson show on a singular chair in the middle of the living room on the council TV. And my dad was kind-hearted enough to let me jump on his lap and watch the Carson show for 10 or 15 minutes with him before he would shoo me back to bed. And we had a wonderful time with that together every now and then. And back about oh, three days after Christmas, when I was in first or second grade, Johnny Carson told a joke about Santa Claus. And the joke implied that Santa Claus really doesn't exist. And then Johnny caught himself. He said, oops, there may be some naughty boys and girls still awake. And I just gave up the ghost that Santa doesn't exist. And so I shot a look up at my dad and I asked him, I said, Dad, is this true? And he looked down at me and said, Son, Santa Claus is right here. And he pointed to his back pocket where his wallet was. <laughs> he said, <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, thank you so much for that story, for the memories. I know so many listening have them. And uh, I know that memory is one that's close to you. You can hear it in your voice. Thanks for calling. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. You got it. Well, on the last night of his broadcast, Bette Midler came out, and she closed the proceedings. And Bette, people don't know this about her, was a remarkable singer in her early years in the 70s down in New York City uh, and down into particular neighborhoods where torch singers and balladeers played. She was gifted. She went on to act, and people don't know this part of her career. But Bette came out. She was the last performer, and this is what she did. For Johnny. Well, that's how it goes. And John, I know you're getting anxious to close. So thanks for the cheer. I hope you didn't mind me bending your ear. That you showed Make it one for my baby And one more for the road That long,
Doesn't get much better than that, folks. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the hour, we covered the life of Johnny Carson. And it's interesting where he came from, because he also attributed so much of his success to that small town in Nebraska. Right square in the middle of the country. Solid family upbringing. Solid, solid life. And he just, again, so generous, shining a light on others. The last thing he did in his life on the air was shining a light on Bette Midler's remarkable talent and simply reacting to it. This is Our American Stories, and we're telling the story of Johnny Carson, who on this day in history, back in 2005, passed away.